Blog Talk Radio. Radio. What I'm gonna do next for you is gonna play 
the lesson. This is John MacArthur and the proof of Christ's feelings. You know, truth be told you. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. Now, I want us to kind of pick up where we left off last Sunday, and that was with some very explicit statements from the angels in Luke 2. So let's go back to Luke chapter 2, where we pick up the narrative in verse 8. There were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we focused on the word Christ. And I told you last week that's not Jesus' last name. That identifies him as the Messiah. That is the word anointed one. In the Old Testament, Messiah was the anointed one. And when Christ came, as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, the angel says the Anointed One has arrived. He is the Savior and the Redeemer. He is the Deliverer, but He is in particular the Anointed One. That's what the word Christ means. So all through the New Testament, you see Him identified with that title, Christ, the Anointed One. And I pointed out to you last time that in the Old Testament there were three separate men who received an anointing for special service. There were the prophets and the priests and the kings. They were anointed with oil for unique service, a symbol of God putting on them responsibility to function under His direction and sovereignty. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. But there was promised one who would be the greatest prophet and the greatest priest and the greatest king, the anointed one. And the angel says there in the book of Luke, the Savior, Christ, the Lord, has come. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And we looked into that last time. Now, the message of the angel is that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
And to see that clearly, I want you to go now to Hebrews chapter 1, where we were last time. And I, I want you to stay with me in this because this is a very, very powerful portion of Scripture. Let me remind you of the opening verses. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. That introduces Christ as the ultimate prophet whose revelation transcends that of the Old Testament prophets. This prophet is also the heir of all things. He is the one who made the world. He is the one who best reveals God because He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. No prophet in the Old Testament could represent God the way that the Lord Jesus did. In Him, we see the fullness of Godhead bodily. So He is the ultimate prophet as the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. He is the full and complete revelation of God, transcending all other prophets. And then He says He upholds all things by the word of His power. He is a prophet whose word has more power than any who ever spoke. He spoke the worlds into existence, and He sustains the universe by the word of His power. That's how powerful this prophet is. Secondly, He introduces Him as a priest in verse 3 when He made purification of sins. He came and came to the cross, and there He provided a sacrifice that satisfied God on behalf of the elect and made the sacrifice for their sins that satisfied God so that He could grant forgiveness and salvation to those who believe. No priest was ever able to offer a final sacrifice. He offered one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Himself and completed redemption for all who would believe. There is no priest like Him. We said last time that priests had to keep offering sacrifices day after day after day after day, year after year after year, none of them satisfied God. They simply showed the futility of any human effort and pointed to the future when an acceptable sacrifice would come offered by a perfectly righteous priest. That was Christ offering Himself. And then, says the writer of Hebrews at the end of verse 3, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That presents Him as King. He is a prophet like no other. He is a priest like no other, and He is a king like no other, for He alone occupies the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we said last time that He is the prophet who revealed God because He is God. He is the priest who reconciled to God by providing a satisfactory sacrifice on behalf of His people, and He is the king who reigns with God. He is all of these because He is God, He is the Creator, He is the exact radiance of God's glory and representation of His nature. This is massive, massive truth. Written to Jewish readers, as obviously is indicated by the title of this letter, the whole epistle of Hebrews 
is a presentation of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of this entire book of 13 chapters is to show how Jesus is preeminent, how He is superior to everyone who has ever lived or will ever live. Having said that, it might seem a bit odd to come to verse 4 and read this, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now that seems like sort of falling off the high ground. Most people, when they think of angels, think of some rather infantile, plump little beings that circulate in the air with blank looks on their face and look virtually impotent, powerless, and somewhat indifferent. Why? If you're going to write an epistle and you're going to go through the laborious reasoning that the writer of Hebrews goes through to prove the superiority of Jesus Christ, why, after such an incredible introduction that identifies Him as the promised prophet, priest, king, a prophet like no other, a priest like no other, a king like no other, why does He say to prove that, that He's better than angels? That just seems a little weak. But that's because we don't understand angels. The intention of the writer is this. He's going to validate the Son of God by making sure you understand His relationship to angels. He is much better than angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus' relation to the angels flows through this passage all the way down to chapter 2, verse 9. This is a huge issue. This is where the writer of Hebrews begins to prove the deity of Jesus Christ, the Messiahship of Christ, that He is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And I know for many people it would seem like a minor issue to... Connect Him with angels. Why would He prove the preeminence of Christ in His relationship to angels? Well, obviously, He thinks it's the priority. He thinks it's the most important defense He can give. And the answer as to why is He's writing to Jews. And He's writing to Jews who knew the Old Testament history of angels. Over a hundred times in the Old Testament, angels are seen. And to say to a Jewish person, or to write this letter to Jewish readers and say, Jesus is much better than angels, Jesus has a more excellent name than angels, would be shocking, it would be stunning. And frankly, it would be blasphemous. 
angels were the closest thing to God. The Jews knew about that. Way back in the book of Job, written in the patriarchal era, in Job chapter 38, the Lord says, Out of the whirlwind, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Talking about creation. Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk on? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So he's saying to Job, where were you when I created the world and the angels were there singing? The angels were at the creation. Angels in the book of Exodus guarded the Ark of the Covenant. They guarded the Holy of Holies. Angels were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. In fact, with a powerful, deadly sword to prevent anyone from coming into the now cursed garden to eat of the tree of life. That's what it says in Genesis 3. Angels were very threatening and powerful beings. It was an angel who appeared to Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, to give her a message from God. It was an angelic messenger who gave her, in spite of the sin, in spite of the fact that Ishmael was an illegitimate son and not a covenant child, God nonetheless, through an angel in Genesis 16, gave to Hagar a promise, a temporal promise of blessing. Lest you think that angels are benign bystanders, in Genesis chapter 19, angels came to Sodom and said they were going to literally burn it to ashes. And it was angels who rescued Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and the angels literally took them by hand and led them out. It was an angel who stopped Abraham from driving a dagger into the heart of his son Isaac. It was an angel who at that point affirmed to Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 22. It was an angel who helped Isaac find a bride, Genesis 24. Jacob saw angels ascending and descending from heaven on a ladder. What was that about? That was simply a symbolic demonstration that God's angels are coming and going on behalf of God's purposes and will in the world. They are engaged not only in heaven, but on earth doing God's will, Genesis 28. When Jacob blessed Joseph, he spoke of the angel who had redeemed me from evil. An angel had rescued him. It was an angel that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. 
in Exodus 3. It was an angel of God that led Israel with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the wanderings in the wilderness. Just a couple of passages that I'll read you in Exodus 23, verse 20. And the Jews would know all this. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way as you go into the promised land and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. That's a powerful angel. He's going to lead you. He's going to command you. And you're going to follow him. And you're going to obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him. For he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. This angel will offer you no forgiveness for your disobedience. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. That is a powerful angel. An angel who speaks for God, who acts for God. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they've made a, a gold God for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sins, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go, lead the people where I told you. Behold, here's my angel again, shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. Powerful, powerful angel to speak for God, to be obeyed, and to participate even in judgment on the disobedient. Numbers 20 says it was an angel who brought Israel out of Egypt. Numbers 22 tells us about an angel who kept Balaam from cursing Israel. In Judges chapter 2, it was an angel that confirmed God's covenant. I will never break my covenant with you, the angel spoke. It was an angel who appeared to Gideon in Judges 6. It was an angel who said to him, The Lord is with you. O oh, valiant warrior. Manoah, the father of Samson, was confronted by an angel. And that angel said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Judges 13, 18. It was an angel of judgment that killed 70,000 people 
and was about to destroy the city of Jerusalem when God stopped him, 2 Samuel 24. Why? Punishment for David's faithless census as he wanted to depend on the strength of his troops rather than on his God. It was an angel who ministered to Elijah when in 1 Kings 19 he was running from Jezebel. In 2 Kings 19, this is amazing, it was an angel who slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians attacking Jerusalem. One angel. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Psalm 35, 5 and 6, Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord, which the angel of the Lord has driven. Psalm 78, 49, He sent upon them His burning anger. He did not even spare their soul from death a band of destroying angels. They appear on a number of occasions for the purpose of judgment and destruction. On the other hand, Psalm 91.11, He will give His angel charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Or Psalm 103.20, Bless the Lord, you His angels mighty in strength to perform His Word, obeying the voice of His Word. The holy angels are perfectly obedient, supernaturally powerful, and they are dispatched with the message of God, whether it's a message of blessing, affirmation of the covenant, or judgment. Psalm 148.2 says, Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Isaiah 63.8 and 9 so He became their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. Angels delivered people. Angels of destruction are mentioned in Ezekiel 8 through 11. In the description of the Millennial Temple in Ezekiel 40, it's angels who measure the Millennial Temple. In Daniel chapter 3, and the angels are very active in the life of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, in the fiery furnace, it's an angel that appears there. In the fourth chapter of Daniel, you have angels called watchers. These are judgment angels. In Daniel chapter 6, you have angels who shut the mouths of lions. Zechariah 1 says, angels patrol the earth for God. That's an incredible passage. Zechariah 1, 12. Maybe I should read it to you. It's marvelous. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the city of Judah which you have, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words, so the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, 
declares the Lord, and the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. And again proclaims, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. These are the patrolling angels who move about the earth to do the purposes of God. Back in verse 11, the angel of the Lord standing in the myrtle tree says, We have patrolled the earth. Angels speak for God. You see that in Zechariah 2, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 4, Zechariah 5, Zechariah 6. Zechariah 12. Deuteronomy 33.2 says they are a massive host, 10,000 holy ones. Psalm 68.17 says the chariots of God are 20,000s and thousands upon thousands. Summing it all up, angels are holy, heavenly spirits who serve God as revealers, as guides, as patrollers, as watchers, as interpreters, intercessors, comforters, counselors, judges, protectors, punishers, executioners, even teachers, and certainly worshipers. They appear as God's agents, described as light, fire, shining metal, precious stones, clothed in linen, with golden sashes. They are dazzling super beings with massive power. Daniel 7.10, Daniel saw thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before God. Sometimes called living creatures, sometimes called cherubim, sometimes called seraphim. They were present at the giving of the law. Look at chapter 2 of Hebrews in verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, he's referring to the law. If no one could escape the consequences of violating the law, which was spoken through angels, they were there in the giving of the law. In the book of Acts... In chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen says, You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The angels played a role in the giving of the law at Sinai. And they, of course, as we read, were to hold the people accountable for obedience to it. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels. The angels played a role in the bringing of the law of God down on Mount Sinai. You go to Isaiah 6 and you see angels surrounding the throne of God. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So it's not surprising that when you open the New Testament, there are angels everywhere. An angel appears to Mary. An angel appears to Elizabeth. 
an angel appears to the shepherds, and then a whole host of angels. Angels make the announcements. They come from the throne of God. Many traditions, too, by the way, developed about angels. Jews believed in ancient times, some still do, that angels were the mediators between God and men. Traditionally, Jews believed angels were the instrument of bringing God's Word because of their role in the law. Jews believed that angels were working God's will in human life. They believed that angels were some kind of ethereal creatures made out of fiery substance and blazing light. The Jews believed they were created but unable to procreate. They are often called God's counsel. God met with the angels in counsel, and they interpret Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image as God referring to angels because they deny the Trinity. So the angels are the counsel that God was talking about at creation. They name angels. Some are named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael, Lucifer, but they have other presence angels named Raphael, Uriel, other names. There's a tradition that 200 angels control the stars, that there are other angels that control the succession of time, that mighty angels rule the sea, that angels have responsibilities. There are angels of frost and dew and rain and snow and hail and thunder and lightning. There are recording angels who write everything down. There are death angels. There are national angels that have responsibility for nations. There are guardian angels. Some rabbis said every blade of grass has its own angel. Some Jews worshipped angels. Paul denounces the worship of angels in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and chapter 22, to worship angels is forbidden as John reacts to an angelic revelation by giving worship. He is reprimanded for worshiping an angel. So no surprise then that at the arrival of the Son of God, there is a flurry of angelic activity. Interestingly enough, after that flurry around the birth of Christ, angels disappear. In chapter 4, we find that uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. It's as if the Holy Spirit took over. And um, they're really pushed into the background, the angels. They don't appear again until Gethsemane, where they come back and assure Jesus in His sorrow of their loyal worship. So with all that in mind, let's go back to verse 4. having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's not better than angels. He's what? 
much better than angels. This is the foundation argument of this entire letter. Oh, we saw down in chapter 2, verse 9, as well as in verse 7, that He was for a little while made lower than the angels, that He might suffer death. But after that, exalted, crowned with glory and honor. He, in His nature, is much better than angels, much higher than angels. The writer of Hebrews is going to prove it five ways. We we can't get into depth, but I want to touch these for you. Name is the first way. Name. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now angels are called sons of God. We saw that collectively as are human beings in the sense that they were created by God. But no single angel was ever called the son of God. No angel ever had that relationship to God. And so he quotes here, You are my son, today I have begotten you, from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is the father identifying the son. No angel ever was told that he is God's son. He also makes reference to 2 Samuel 7.14. 2 Samuel 7.14, where God will be a father to the offspring of David who will be the Messiah. No angel ever had such a relation to God. What this tells us is that His life is God's life. He is the eternal Son, the second member of the Trinity. If the man Jesus permanently or by nature was lower than the angels, then He would not be the Messiah. He could not be the Son of God. The Holy Spirit then assures us that even though He was for a little while lower than the angels, He is the Son of God. In John 5.18, when Jesus claimed to be God's Son, the people immediately charged Him with blasphemy because He made Himself equal with God. They understood that. Son of God meant you bear the nature of God. You are one with God in essence and nature. This is the very crime for which they killed Him. Matthew twenty-seven forty. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. For He said, I am the Son of God. That was mockery. Son of God didn't mean anything less than deity sharing the essential nature of God. Son of God is a title of deity. 
a title of deity. This is his name, Son. The theme of Hebrews 1 is the absolute superiority of the Son of God. And we've seen the flow of the argument. The Son of God revealed Himself in ways that transcended the prophets. Verse 1, the Son of God is both Creator and Heir of all things. The Son of God is the express manifestation of God, the very brightness of His glory. The Son is the sustainer of all things. The Son is the Redeemer. The Son is seated at the Father's right hand. And the Son is superior to angels. The Jews regarded the term Son of God as blasphemy because it was a declaration of deity. Yes, He was a Son by birth, Luke 3. Yes, He was declared a Son by resurrection, but He is a Son by nature since He bears the very essence of His Father. So He has a much better name than they. Back to verse 4. A much more excellent name than they. What is that name? Verse 5. You're my Son. You're my Son. He's better than angels because of His name. He's a Son. He bears the nature of God. Angels are created beings. He is the uncreated eternal Son. Not just His name, but His position. Look at verse 6. And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let, and let all the angels of God worship Him. That's a quote from Psalm 97, 7. Even though Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, humbled Himself and was made for a time lower than the angels, the angels are commanded to worship Him. God says, even when He brought His firstborn, the prototokos, the premier one, into the world, let all the angels of God worship Him. That affirms that He is God because the only one higher than angels is God Himself. He is always to be worshipped as God. This is the proof that Jesus is God. He has a name that is above angels, Son, and He is the one angel's worship. You see the term firstborn there? That's the Greek word prototokos. It simply means the premier one, the one in the seat of honor and the seat of dignity. And certainly he is in the seat of honor and dignity. And after all, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the expressed representation of his person. He is the one who created everything, upholds everything, and reigns over everything. When he returns... Angelic praise will be completely dominating the new heaven and the new earth. In the book of Revelation, just a couple of passages, we get a picture of how the angels worship Him now as they always have. Revelation 4, verse 7, the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Those are angelic beings. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within, 
And day and night they do not cease to say, this is these intelligent heavenly beings, these angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him. These represent the redeemed saints who sit on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. And again, in the next chapter of Revelation, I looked, John says in verse 11, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. That's a term for 20,000 or 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Angelic worship. And if you're greater than angels, you're God. Because only God is greater than angels. So he is given a, a name that is above angels. He is given a position that is above angels. Angels worship him. The third thing is that he is by nature superior. Look at verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes, that means they're created, poieo, they were created as winds and as ministers. Yes, as winds, they are spirit beings. As a flame of fire, they have power. That may even be emblematic of their holiness. But the point to make here is that they are created. That's what the word makes means. They are ministers. The actual Greek word here means assistants or servers. Servers. They are invisible, powerful, rapid. They bring judgment. They can destroy. Matthew 13, 41 and 42, give a picture of angels throwing people into eternal hell. So they have a different nature. They are created beings, created to serve. Verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You are not created. You, O oh God, are forever and ever. So His nature is the eternal reality that belongs only to God. By the way, that's taken out of Psalm 45. The angels are the servants of God and the servants of the Son of God. The Son is God. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. 
His scepter means that He will reign in the eternal kingdom. He is the one who, as God, is perfect. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. There we see the anointed statement. He is sinless, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Hebrews 7 says, He loved righteousness. He hates lawlessness. The two are inseparable. You can't love righteousness and tolerate lawlessness. So this is the perfection of the anointed one. God's perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so he's anointed above his companions, meaning the angels. Angels are rulers. They're great powers. They serve God. They're created beings. But the Son is eternal. So what do we have up to now? Just in verse 9, Christ's deity is established, His exalted position, His eternal nature, His kingship, the excellence of His rule, the perfection of His character, the submission to God as a willing Son. We have the announcement of His coronation. We have the full declaration of His preeminence. The fourth proof borrowed from the Old Testament is His eternality. Verse 10, taken from Psalm 102. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. That's taken from, as I said, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. In the beginning, that's a very important statement. In the beginning, the sun didn't come into existence. In the beginning, He laid the foundation of the earth, which means that He was alive in existence eternally. And when creation came, He, of course, being the eternal God, created the universe. You, Lord, in the beginning, which means you were there before anything existed, you laid the foundation of the earth. You created the heavens. And you transcend them because you are eternal. We all know that the creation of this earth was for a season, for a time, because we're reminded again that it's going to disappear. It's going to roll up and have that descriptively laid out in the book of Revelation. You can follow that. But verses 11 and 12, go back again to Psalm 102. This is predicted that the earth will not last forever it will be changed. It has a short shelf life. One final statement. He is superior to angels because of His name, Son. Because of His position or rank, He is to be worshipped by angels. 
because of His nature, He is eternal God, because of the fact that He has transcended time and all creation and consummation as the eternal One, which is simply an aspect of His nature. But finally, He is superior to angels because of His destiny, His exaltation. Verse 13, the writer reaches back to Psalm 110.1. But to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He never said that to an angel. He never put an angel in that position. He never elevated an angel to that high, majestic throne. Never. Why? Because verse 14 says, Are they not all serving spirits, ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They're to care for the saints. They're to do the bidding of God. Hebrews 13.2 talks about entertaining angels unawares. Angels are actively engaged in ministering to God's people. So the Son of God is superior to angels. This is not minor. This is major. Because the only one above the angels was God around whose throne the angels were gathered. Christ's deity then is established by His divine names. Son, Lord, Christ, God. By His divine works, creation, sustaining, governing, redeeming, purifying. By His divine attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, immutability, eternality. By divine worship, He's worshipped by all, including the most elevated beings in heaven, the holy angels. So what is the implication of all this? Look at chapter 2, just briefly, for this reason. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Does this get your attention? Should. You better pay attention to what we have heard. And what have we heard? Well, We've heard about the preeminence of the Son of God who made the only sacrifice for sin, who suffered death for us. We need to pay close attention to what we have heard and not drift away from it. For salvation comes only in the name and through the work of Christ. If we had time, we could take you through the rest of the book of Hebrews where the writer continually goes back and says, you better listen, you better listen. Chapter 4, verse 2 is an illustration. Indeed, we have, we have good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard didn't profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. You better not let that happen. 
You, you better not listen and not believe, or it'll be impossible, chapter 6 says, for you to be renewed to repentance. Or chapter 10 says, there's no other sacrifice for you if you reject Christ. You have the truth. Christ is the preeminent one and the only sacrifice for sin and the only Savior. For this reason, because of the preeminence of Christ, listen. There's a second reason. Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels, that's the law at Sinai, proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If people couldn't escape the law's penalty. So, you better listen. Listen because of the preeminence of Christ. Listen because of the certainty of judgment. How are you going to escape from the penalty of the law that's going to come crushing down on you in time and eternity if you neglect the salvation that is in Christ and in Christ alone? Listen. Because of the preeminence of Christ, because of the certainty of judgment, and a third motive, because of the confirmation of God. Verse 3, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, this is the good news of salvation, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, the apostles. God testified with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God attested to the truth concerning Christ and the gospel by the miracles of Jesus and the miracles the apostles did. Peter made that the point in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. The miracles in the life of Jesus and the apostles were the confirmation of God. Don't neglect the gospel of Christ. Don't turn your back on Him. Chapter 3, verse 7, He says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Over in chapter 3, verse 15, He repeats it again, borrowing from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear His voice, do not Harden your hearts. Down in chapter 4, in verse 7, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the final message. Don't harden your heart. You have the proof of the preeminence of Christ the certainty of judgment, and the confirmation of God. So listen to this final word from Hebrews 12:25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. 
And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Look, we expect this kingdom to crumble, don't we? This kingdom to shake. It's being shaken. And if you're a part of that kingdom and that kingdom alone, you're shaken into the very consuming wrath of God. Don't refuse the warnings to come to Christ. Our Father, we're so grateful for Your Word. This is the very argument that You ordained. This is what You wrote. This is from heaven. I only could wish that I could be a, a better steward of it. But by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, seal these truths to every heart. And may they understand that Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, is the Savior and the only Savior. And may no one who hears this harden their heart and suffer the judgment that came on Israel in the past when their hearts were hard. There is no escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And the word neglect is important because I think we may assume that what's important is that we not resent the gospel, that we not deny the gospel. No, that we not neglect it. Most people aren't hostile toward it. They're indifferent. And therein lies their damnation. So seal to our hearts this truth, and I pray, Lord, over this Christmas time, the gospel will go forth and many will hear and escape. Escape in Christ, who alone is our safety. This we pray in His name and for His glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Oh, Father, who art in heaven.
is Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history. If the federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand, this year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. I will be done. Worldwide has reached one billion for the first time since 
When were the angels created? This is Ken Ham, editor of the Exposé Glasshouse, shattering the myth of evolution. You know, the Bible never tells us exactly when angels were created, but it does give us some clues. The Bible says God created all things, including things invisible and principalities and powers, so angels aren't eternal like God. They were created by Him. But when? Well, the book of Job describes the angels celebrating when God laid the foundations of the earth. Now, that was either day one when God created the earth or day three when God created the dry land. We can't know for sure which day angels were created on, but it's likely it was on day one and definitely before day four. What we do know for sure is that God made all things in six days. Get more answers to questions like these at AnswersRadio.com and sign up for Ken Ham's daily email insights. View a transcript of this program and more at AnswersRadio.com.
Satan, when did he fall? This is Ken Ham, and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in northern Kentucky. Satan is a fallen angel, but does the Bible tell us when he fell? Well, no, it really doesn't, but it does offer us some clues. As we learned yesterday, angels were created during the creation week, probably on day one and no later than day three. Now, at the end of the sixth day of the creation week, God pronounced everything he'd made very good. And since God was very good, this must have included the angels, even the ones that would eventually rebel. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it's very unlikely Satan rebelled on that day. From all this, I believe Satan's fall had to be after the end of the creation week, not before. Have more questions? Get solid answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Find thousands of articles, books, videos, and more for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids. Gather round a brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve on day number six created Adam and Eve. In the image of the beautiful most high God told them be fruitful and multiply Everything's yours but that tree do not try Cause in the day you eat it You're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest Yes they failed the test And ever since then the world has been a big mess So as we read the Bible it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. I wasn't good enough, no, I wasn't good enough. 
Light Before the Sun? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the powerful book against racism, One Race, One Blood. On day one of Creation Week, God said, let there be light, and there was light. But he didn't create the sun until three days later. So what was this first light? Well, the scriptures don't say. But throughout history, people have suggested maybe it was a manifestation of Christ's glory or angels, or maybe a proto-sun, or simply an unnamed temporary light source. You know, we can't know for sure. So why did God create this light, whatever it was, and not just make the sun on day one? Well, again, scripture doesn't say, but throughout history, cultures have tended to worship the sun as God. Maybe God created it on day four to show that the sun isn't God, so worship God. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will.
us grow to make us look more like his son. We pray that his ways he'd help us know above all that his will be done. We pray that God would provide all our needs, that we would glorify him in all our deeds because of Jesus and how we die in our place. We can come to the throne of grace, we can pray. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis and the popular Ark Encounter. Before the flood, people lived for hundreds of years. These long lifespans slowly tapered off after the flood. But how did people live for so many years before the flood? Well, originally, we were created to live forever. But because of sin, our bodies wear out and die. So why do we die so young? Well, it probably has to do with things like diet, environmental changes, and genetics. Think about genetics. The global flood reduced the population to just eight people. Now, that's a huge genetic bottleneck. Perhaps mutated genes giving a shorter lifespan were the only ones that survived in Noah's family. Therefore, they were passed on to their descendants, like us. Everyone has questions. Find answers that affirm the truth of God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. Plan your visit to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes.
Where was Eden? This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. You know, the Bible describes the Garden of Eden as a real place. But where was it? Well, many people think it was in the Middle East because the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are mentioned as flowing in Eden. That's where the rivers are today. But this idea has two big problems. First, even though they have the same names, the modern-day Tigris and Euphrates rivers aren't the ones that flowed in Eden. They don't match the description. And problem number two, the flood. The flood destroyed the world of that time. So where was the Garden of Eden? We just don't know. Eden was wiped away during the flood, and our world today is very different from the world before the flood. Discover more answers when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
Are you looking for an easy way to read through the Bible? Well, there is a perfect Bible reading plan just for you. Best of all, it's free. If you have a Bible, this won't cost you a thing. Are you ready? Here it is. Open up your Bible and read it. I know, brilliant, right? It's the perfect Bible reading plan. Terrible marketing strategy, though. There's nothing to sell. Okay, so maybe this is not what you were expecting. Maybe you want to know a good plan for reading your Bible over the course of a year. Consider that there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you were to break that up over 365 days, you could read three to four chapters a day, and you would make it through the Bible in a year. Or be committed to reading six days a week, saving Sunday for the study you do with your church. If you were to read four chapters a day, six days a week, you would finish the Bible in just under a year. If you want to read five days a week, Monday to Friday, then read five chapters a day and you will finish in a year. Use that little bookmark ribbon in your Bible and pick up tomorrow where you left off. Sometimes you'll read a little more, sometimes a little less. You might want to put Psalm 119 on its own day. If you commit to reading 15 to 30 minutes of the Bible each day, less than the length of a TV episode, you can read through the entire Bible in a year. In John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free when we understand the text. The Bible Project is one of the most popular Bible teaching sites on the web, but that does not mean they're sound. Listen to what they say about hell. Whatever hell is, God didn't make it. Hell is something that humans have created. Really? Humans created hell? In Matthew 25:41, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared by whom? Not us. Verse 46 says, The unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. No one in the Bible talked about hell more than Jesus, and he said it's a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. The Son of Man will send his angels to throw the unrepentant into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the Bible Project says, Hell, and that word and what that refers to, it's not some place other than heaven and earth. It's a place where people are sustained by God's mercy and care but God allows them the dignity of not being in a relationship with him if they don't want. Hell is a place of God's mercy and care? No, hell is God's wrath, poured out on the wicked forever. Rejecting God is not dignified, it's damnable. The only way to be snatched from the flames is to worship Jesus Christ. He talked about hell so much so you would not go there, so you would turn to him and be saved. This soft teaching from the Bible Project will lead people you know where. Avoid it when we understand the text. That was when we understood the text. Um, uh, you could check them out at www.utt on YouTube or also www.utt.com, our website. So check them out, www.utt. That's when we understand the text. And what I'm going to do now is this is going to play from This is for Wretched. When we use our tongues in a way that dishonors God's name, we use his name in vain. This is when we curse and swear. This is when you use God's holy name as a four-letter filth word to express disgust. Who else do we 
blaspheme in such a way? Answer, nobody. When was the last time you saw somebody on a YouTube video get pranked and say, oh, my Hitler, oh, Genghis Khan, oh, Shaka Khan, oh, James Khan? Never. Instead, it's always God's name. When we use it as if it is a lowly thing to express shock, or that we're annoyed. We are taking God's name in vain. So instead of using something coarse and disgusting and lowly, we take God's high name, we pull it down, and we bring it into the mud. That is what we do when we casually toss it out there. Have you committed the crime against the third commandment lately? Number nine, a way we can do that. When we make rash vows, we use God's name in vain. And finally, number ten, when we speak evil of God in a circumstance he is bringing us through, we use his name in vain. Maybe the word evil perhaps struck you as just a little bit too strong. So you thought, I don't qualify for that one. Are you sure? Man, the weather. Oh, I can't believe that I've got this situation. Oh, that's going to happen now. Oh, I don't have this. Oh, I'd rather have that. Congratulations. You're taking God's name in vain because you're accusing him of not being a good provider. Anytime we accuse God of not being who he is, We've taken his name in vain. Has this perhaps led you to ponder earnestly, why? Why does God care so much about these little side door ways that we can violate the third commandment? What's the big deal? We are forced to answer this question, and I promise you, when you do, it is going to alter your Christian walk. When we have a low opinion of something, we use it in a low way. Isn't that what swear words are? It's a coarse activity. It is a vile object. It is something that is disdained. So we just throw it out to express a disgusted attitude. That is what we do with God's name Anytime we pull it down from its rightful place and use it wrongly, and that is the answer to our why question. Why does God care about this? You see, we think God, he's like one of us, just a slob like one of us. He's just my home slice. No, he's not. He's otherly. He is different. His name is higher than the heavens. He is not like us. When we do not recognize that or fail to remember it, we take his name in vain. But more than that, we miss out. We miss out on understanding God. And you miss out on one of the greatest weapons we have in the battle of sanctification, an understanding of the holiness of God. When we realize that we, like Uzzah, are dirtier than the dirt and that God is high and holy and different, and that we would tremble in his presence, I promise you, even as a beloved child of God, we will not enter into his presence going, high five, God! We will fall to our faces, and we will worship him as holy, 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 our God 
who has redeemed us. He is a consuming fire. He is so different than us. He is so much purer than us. He is so much holier than we are. We will not be thinking that he is just our knock-around chum. Have you perhaps had too low of a view of God? Have you been using his name in vain, and have you been losing the battle against sin? Here is my challenge to you. Change your understanding of who God is. Change your understanding of how high he is. Change your understanding of how powerful and mighty and omniscient and omni-everything he is. And when you do, you will not only avoid taking his name in vain, you will avoid sinning. Why? Because you will realize that God is holy, holy, holy. And how dare I, his creature, commit this vile act? It will change your life when you change your estimation of God. Do, 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 do. That was from Wretched, and you can find them at wretched.org, and also that was gotten from their YouTube page, Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. And like I said, Wretched.org has their radio show and TV show, so check that out, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org, Wretched.org. Thanks for listening to me, most Cantrell, Truth Be Told Radio. I'm play a song for you.
Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word. website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.